this is season two of My Only Story. It's a co-production of the My Only Story non-profit company and News24. So, this is awkward. Before I spill the final beans, I must ask you to splash yours. To take on the country's mightiest institutions in a fairly elegant way, we need vast amounts of research, lawyering and production. Season 2 of My Only Story has cost way more than a million rand. For us to do Season 3, we will need your help. My Only Story is a non-profit company, which means all donations are tax-deductible. The more you give, the more you save. Seriously, though, it's easier for me to tell you about children's exploitation than to ask you for money. I know, I need therapy, which I do have and heartily recommend. You can donate via myonlystory.org or, if you want to bequeath an estate, no matter how small, please get in touch. Thank you for all your help, support and kindness throughout this production. We'll move heaven and earth to make season three happen. If my request has not triggered you yet, please take note. There's a trigger warning coming right up. This is a trigger warning. If you are a survivor of abuse, or if you know the people involved in the story, this podcast could be hard to listen to. It also discusses suicide and suicidal ideation, which some people might find troubling. Also note that this episode contains swearing. If anything comes up for you while listening to this episode, please find someone to talk to at myonlystory.org. It is March 2018, in Grahamstown. In three days' time, on his 16th birthday, Thomas Kruger will take his parents to Pride Rock. As we're walking back up the hill, I say to Tom, how did you find this place? He says to me, Dad, this is mine and Mr. McKenzie's favourite place. But three days before then, it's lunchtime on a Saturday and an autumn's afternoon at St. Andrew's College. There has been some kind of incident, and David McKenzie furiously fires off messages to make sure that certain boys are in their rooms and not anywhere else. In three months' time, the dodgy water polo coach will resign from St. Andrew's with immediate effect, but at this point, nobody knows that yet. And every boy in McKenzie's circle still runs around when he snaps his fingers or sends his WhatsApps or throws his toys. On the campus against the hill, boys are scuttling and hiding. At 12.40pm, McKenzie sends Thomas a message. Quote, for once in your life, do as I ask please, end quote. Thomas writes, yes sir. 23 minutes later, at 1.03pm, Thomas writes, quote, is in his room, end quote. And then Thomas makes a mistake. He sends a message to David McKenzie that was intended for some classmates. Tom deletes the message straight away, but it's too late. McKenzie has seen it already. The teacher writes to the 15-year-old boy, quote, Why must other people meet you at admin? Fuck, you are dumb. End quote. The boy writes back, quote, Sorry, sir, that wasn't meant for you, emoji with gritted teeth. I was just trying to forward it to someone else. I must have clicked on your name by mistake. So sorry, Tom. End quote. Mackenzie writes, quote, Just stop and hide. Turn your phone off so you don't talk to anyone else. End quote. By this point, Thomas and Mackenzie have been in constant WhatsApp contact. That's the way it is with all the boys he picks. WhatsApps in the morning and the afternoon and late night. But for three whole days after the Saturday incident, 
Mackenzie speaks not a single word to Thomas. Then finally, at a quarter to seven, three evenings later, Mackenzie breaks his silence. He writes, quote, Thomas! Five exclamation marks. Happy birthday, my boy! Three exclamation marks. Five flexing arm emojis. One emoji crying with laughter. End quote. And then he mentions some kind of event three days earlier. Mackenzie writes, quote, Thank goodness we celebrated on Saturday. End quote. Thomas writes back, quote, Thank goodness. End quote. And then it's another three days later, Friday. At 7.02 in the morning, Mackenzie writes to Tom, quote, Where you? Two question marks, end quote. Tom does not respond instantly, so twice before the minute is over, Mackenzie sends the letter P for ping. In an outrage, it takes Thomas four minutes to respond to his teacher's question. He's with two other pupils, he says. The teacher stays quiet for two hours and four minutes. Then he writes to Tom, quote, Please just tell people you are leaving for a nose operation. People are having nervous breakdowns, end quote. The boy responds, quote, I know, sir. That's what I told everyone except like five people, end quote. Mackenzie writes back, quote, Yes, well, tell those five people you're fine and it's just the nose. They are losing it, grown as boys crying their eyes out, end quote. Let me tell you straight away, I don't know more about any of the circumstances of the events above. I do not know why David McKenzie had sent the boys to their rooms in a panic. I don't know why Thomas had to go hide or how his birthday was celebrated the previous weekend. And if Thomas needed more than a nose operation, well, this is the first time his father has heard about that. Today, in our series finale of My Only Story, questions are answered, more questions emerge, and somebody says, me too. I'm Dion Wiggett, and this is My Only Story, a podcast and a live investigation. On my stoop in Johannesburg a few days ago, my eyes are burning and my mind is reeling, and I am not in the mood to take any prisoners. Next month, it will be three years since Charles Kruger's life fell apart a few hours after his son stepped out of the window. The last thing Thomas saw could only have been the water polo pool straight ahead of him. The pool where Tom spent so many, many memorable days with a coach who moves like an octopus through the water. In the two years since I first spoke to Charles Kruger, I've seen him doing better and worse, but infrequently doing better and often doing worse. For a long time now, he's been hanging his hopes off this investigation. His commitment to his quest has not wavered, even when, as often, it's been devastating to sift through the questions and stomach the answers. The primary objective is to make sure that this does not happen to your kid. And if the institution has enabled it, they need to be held accountable for their actions. My own quest has been similar to Charles. But also, it's been personal. Ever since I came to grips with my own childhood sex abuse, I've been furious with the schools that fail to fight it, the system that gives career offenders unfettered access to children's bodies while slivering out of all consequences by resigning and moving on, while the former employer must sigh in relief over another bullet dodged, 
Yet another sequence of brutality safely deposited under a rug at hand. We do not keep children safe by keeping quiet about the teachers who stalk them. Good morning. We welcome back Headmaster Alan Thompson. It is early winter 2015 and in his first year in office, he tells the success of a coach that his predecessor appointed. Our water polo is a fast-growing sport and our water polo boys are doing very well. Wonderful new coach in the form of David McKenzie and record number of boys turning out for water polo. The seasons ahead are looking extremely promising as we have some wonderful talent in the lower age groups. Just over a year from now, reports on the wonderful new coach will start to drip, drip into an eventual deluge. But McKenzie still has three years left in his college career. In those three years, justifying his behaviour would become a major task for Headmaster Alan Thompson. And also for the long-time chairman of the Board of St Andrews, Standard Bank CEO turned presidential envoy, Jacko Maria. Shall we? To me, one of the big hypothetical questions of the investigation is this. Could Tom Kruger's life have been saved if St Andrews College acted earlier against the predatory polo coach? Or was the boy merely a troubled teenager and the polo coach irrelevant? Exactly when did it become apparent that there's a potential problem with David McKenzie? Who knew what and when? Last month, Headmaster Alan Thompson told News24 that he received two formal and two informal complaints against McKenzie before he signed a boy out of the sanatorium and left St Andrews. And Chairman Maria said, yes, that is true. Alan Thompson did tell him about two formal and two informal complaints against the polo coach. Even though the law does not differentiate between formal and informal complaints against teachers, let us accept the two gentlemen's version and try to prove it. Of the six complaints I know about, which two were formal, which two were informal, and which two were, I don't know, not formal, not informal, not even corporeal. Who knew what from 2016 to 2019? My name is Wilder McNutt. I am 21. I'm a student at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. I went into grade 8 at the beginning of 2014. Then, a year into Wilder's time at Espenhouse, it's 2015 and there's a new polo coach in town. And within another year, intervention will be required. My name is Leslie McNutt. I'm 56 years old and I am the mother of Wilder McNutt. I am based permanently in Botswana and the Okavango Delta. I've been based there for 30 years. I'm from Canada originally. I run with my husband a conservation research and education program. In David McKenzie's first year at Espenhouse, he tries to cultivate a good relationship with both Leslie and Wilder. At sporting events, he tells Leslie secrets from the staff room, from Espenhouse, and from the side of the polo pool. He tried to become friends with especially the mums. And there were several incidents where I found that he was clearly going out of his way to make those parents feel that he was important to their son. He had their son's best interest in mind. He was trying to make sure that the parents knew that and knew the value that he had to their success. Then a whole bunch of things happen. Wilder goes to a maths lesson in David McKenzie's flat and it doesn't go according to plan. Remember this story from episode three. I mean, I was confused at the time. I went for a maths lesson, but nothing happened. There was no maths done. 
there was no schoolwork done. You know, there was it was not what I was expecting because I left doing nothing. I, and I never went back. He, I mean, he drove it. No maths was done. It was obviously not the plan. Then, twice, Wilder doesn't get picked for the first polo team. I wanted to be on that squad. Asked him twice, am I going to be on the squad? No, for the longest part of this investigation. And then left me off. Twice. I ignored any complaints about Johnny didn't make the team. It seems like an entitled whinge that discredits any real problems that may lurk in coaches' behavior. But then, pretty recently, I came to understand just how much control coaches have over children's dreams. If the coach is the sole one to decide who makes first team and who doesn't, it raises quite the burning question. Exactly what do children have to do to retain the favor of an untouchable coach? In 2016, Wilder just started losing his confidence. He just started losing his faith in himself. I said, you know, what do you think is going on there? He said, honestly, I don't know. Mom. I cannot tell you what's going on. I just don't understand why things are not going well for me now. I said, well, why don't you go and, and speak to Mr. McKenzie and ask him to explain? Ask him to help you. And he said, I, I couldn't. I will just rage if I have to be in a room with him. And I said, what's that about? And he couldn't answer my question. He couldn't really articulate it. I don't know if he just couldn't to me or he couldn't, period. I don't know. But that was when I started to become aware of the fact that he was un unhappy and unwell and becoming unwell. By now, events have reached a critical mass. Leslie has seen and heard enough. She has overheard inappropriate conversations between Mackenzie and his students. She has seen him pick his favorites and has seen the costs of not complying. And so she decides to go see Headmaster Thompson. Wilder has just started grade 11 and Thomas Kruger is in grade 9. 28th of February 2017, I went into Alan Thompson's office to have a meeting to discuss a variety of things and the immediate concerns we had about David McKenzie and his relationship with Wilder and the impact it was having on Wilder. And I took the opportunity at that meeting to bring up the other things that had happened over the previous 18 months that gave me cause for concern about unprofessional behavior of Mr. McKenzie towards parents, towards students, and towards other teachers. Some of the behavioral patterns that were starting to be clear to us. So I went into the meeting with Mr. Thompson with all of these complaints. And he said to me that there were very serious allegations that I was making in order for him to do anything with them, I needed to put them in writing. When Leslie sends Alan Thompson the letter, it includes her first-hand accounts of David McKenzie's inappropriate behavior. The letter has headings like inappropriate communication with students, inappropriate sharing of confidential information, emotional manipulation and abuse of a position of power, and inappropriate familiarity with boys. At the bottom, Leslie writes, quote, The series of personal experiences reflects a trend. We identified issues of inappropriate behavior and communication with Mr. McKenzie from the beginning of his tenure at St. Andrew's College. If taken singly, few of these issues might be considered extreme offenses. However, collectively, they characterize a personality who is in a position at college with extremely close contact with vulnerable young boys, 
a personality who has demonstrated a number of severe and egregious violations of trustworthiness and honesty that should raise questions for college as an institution regarding his qualifications, maturity, abilities, and intentions. End quote. We all understand by now that the points that Leslie is mentioning are entirely consistent with grooming. When receiving reports such as this one, what is a school to do? The standard response from schools, judging by what I've seen in this podcast, is that an educator is innocent until proven guilty. While this is a solid presumption, the reality is not that binary. I beg you allow me an extended analogy set in a shop. The owner of the shop is you. A lovely shop it is and a large one, stocked with rooms of precious items and tended by staff who are widely admired. Then one morning, you receive a disturbing report. Somebody claims that a powerful cashier has been stealing the precious items. You may be angry or shocked or sad, but what would you do about the suspect cashier? My guess would be, you would do something. You may not say something straight away, but I bet you would keep an eye on the powerful cashier. You would monitor the time they spend with the precious objects. If they have the keys to the shop, you'd hastily install CCTV. The one thing you won't do is nothing. The powerful cashier may be innocent till proven guilty, but until they're proven innocent, I don't believe you'd leave them in charge of anything of value. I do not believe you would trust the cashier to select which objects they will take on a water polo tour to the former Yugoslavia. When Wilder came back from that water polo tour, he just wasn't well. His friends were telling us that he was becoming reclusive. He was unhappy. Parents of his friends were calling and asking me if Wilder was okay. He was just on this you know, great trajectory of success. And then he just plummeted throughout that year. And so we had a bit of an intervention really with him in October of that year, my husband and myself. And we just sat for a weekend and we talked about what was going on and what he was feeling and what did he think. And it became clear to all of us that the things that had not gone well for him all were linked to David McKenzie. And it seemed that he, he was being manipulated. His chances of success were being manipulated directly by David McKenzie, and we made him aware of that as a possibility. In that school and in that situation, it's hard to doubt staff members because they're staff members. You just don't, you don't know any better. We got back to Grahamstown, and Tico and I were concerned, Tico's my husband, we were concerned enough for Wilder's general mental health and concerned enough about what we now consider to be devious and manipulative behavior by David McKenzie that we needed to bring it to the attention of Valen Thompson. Wilder went back to school for dinner. I wrote an email to Mr. Thompson requesting an urgent meeting with him. Could he please make time for us? It was a matter of urgency. But in that email, I never suggested what it was about. And I didn't copy it through to anybody else. He wrote me back quite quickly. He could meet us at 9.30 in the morning. But something clearly happens after Leslie's email at 6.30 p.m. Somehow, before the next morning, Someone tells David McKenzie. I wake up, I go to breakfast, finish breakfast, back in my room by, you know, 7.05. David barges into my room, tells my roommate to get out the room, closes the door. 
he came, walked straight up. He came quite close. I was sitting down on my bed, and then I was looking up. What's your problem with me? Do you have a problem with me? What's your mom's problem? Why is your mom meeting the headmaster this morning? Is it about me? I have no idea that this meeting is even going on. I was just like, what the hell did my mom do? All the events so far occurred in 2017. But this was not the first time Alan Thompson received a complaint against David McKenzie. The first complaint we can positively establish was almost a year before Mackenzie confronted Wilder McNutt in his bedroom at Espen House. It is 29 November 2016 when Jackie Sauer arrives in Alan Thompson's office next to her ex-husband, Gunther Marx. Gunther, in addition to being the father of two boys, was also at the time the deputy headmaster of St. Andrew's College. The parents have some urgent news for Headmaster Thompson. They are worried about the behavior of a certain water polo coach. In a follow-up letter written the next year, Jackie Sauer calls McKenzie's actions unprofessional and inappropriate. Quote, In the meeting, I stated that it was my opinion that Mr. McKenzie was dangerous and should not be in a position of authority or power. End quote. There's a list of complaints. McKenzie broke her son's confidence. He has clear favorites. He's been getting too close to the boys. Quote, it concerns me that there is a possibility that the relationship that Mr. McKenzie forms with the boys that he assists may be initiated by him and not by the boys. It is my opinion that he makes himself available to assist boys and fosters relationships based on his helping them. I think in this he oversteps the boundaries of professionalism, end quote. And she adds, quote, I am very concerned about his behavior, both to those he maligns and those he overtly and overly favors. I fear he manipulates young boys to what end, I cannot say. I find it frightening that he is in a position of power and seems to wield that power without fear of consequence." End quote. And so, by the end of 2017, Alan Thompson's desk has two separate complaints against David McKenzie. That's the point where someone has an inspired idea. Since both the complaints relate to David McKenzie, let us hear them both together as a sort of class in action. And so, as the spy schools used to say, two become one. And then it is Monday, 27 November 2017, and two parents with two sets of complaints arrive for an HR meeting the school insisted on. In front of an independent HR consultant provided by St. Andrew's College, Leslie McNutt and Jackie Sauer report a long list of grooming behavior. In the admin block, we are in the office of former deputy headmaster Gunther Marx, who is also the ex-husband of complainant Jackie Sauer. In a tough, almost two-hour meeting, the mothers are quizzed by St. Andrew's independent HR consultant. His name is Michael Jarvis. He is the sole proprietor of a Port Elizabeth company called Strategies Structures Solutions. According to Michael Jarvis's personal Facebook page, Quote, I sort of run the place. My accountant says otherwise. My clients are divided. End quote. In the admin block at St. Andrews, Michael Jarvis listens to the mother's complaints. 
Jackie says that boys who did not want to befriend Mackenzie, quote, end up being maligned and the recipients of his malice, end quote. Leslie says that it, quote, appeared to the boys that David Mackenzie did not have friends of his own except for certain boys, end quote. Jackie says she worried about what happens in the teacher's flat. Quote, it is known amongst boys in the school that certain children spend time in his flat, end quote. Leslie says Mackenzie, quote, enabled kids to get away with things that other kids don't, end quote. After a harrowing hour and a half, independent St. Andrew's HR consultant Michael Jarvis has heard enough. According to the minutes of the meeting, he asks the mothers, was it possible that much of the behaviors identified in their complaints related to impulsive or immature behavior rather than malicious or considered? Are you insane, say the two mothers, although not quite in those words. But Michael Jarvis seems to believe he has got to the bottom of matters. This is, quote, not so much about specific incidents, but rather the meaning and alleged repeated pattern of behavior of David McKenzie, end quote. Then Leslie brings up the confrontation in Wilder's room in Espenhouse. If she doesn't get a satisfactory answer, she says, she will take her complaint to the board. Yeah, yeah, we'll look into it, says Michael Jarvis, although not quite in those words. What Michael Jarvis does not say is that these matters should be reported to the South African Council for Educators, or SACE. He will be reporting to Headmaster Thompson, at whose pleasure he serves. And off Michael Jarvis goes on Monday morning. By Friday, he's already written up his findings. After an investigation that spans more than three working days, he hands his report to Alan Thompson. It's the report that I must call the Great Whitewash, and I'm not the only one. We'd like to see the report, the mothers say. Sorry, no can do, says Headmaster Thompson. These are confidential matters. As a storyteller, my mind boggles at spending this much narrative time on something called an HR meeting. Thing is, what St. Andrews College seems determined to treat as an HR matter is nothing of the kind. And so the next Wednesday, nine days after the so-called HR meeting, Headmaster Thompson writes to Leslie McNutt and Jackie Sauer. He says he received a detailed report, but will not be, quote, elaborating on the context and content of the report itself, end quote. But he does communicate some of the findings. He says McKenzie, quote, has been instructed to work through a personal development plan which addresses the range of style and experience issues that are reflected in your communication. This developmental plan will be overseen by senior educators at the school under my personal supervision, end quote. And then the report lurches into an issue that did not exist when Leslie went to complain. It's this incident. He walked straight up. He came quite close. I was sitting down on my bed, and then I was looking up. This apparently was considered beyond the pale, and Mackenzie will be issued with a written warning. But there's good news. Headmaster Thompson writes, quote, David has accepted the feedback and committed himself to constructive engagement, end quote. Now, clearly, I am neither Leslie McNutt nor Jackie Sauer. However, my blood boiled when I read the final two paragraphs of Thompson's letter. Quote, in the circumstances, I would encourage you to receive this as a balanced and constructive mechanism to enforce progressive discipline, limit the possibility of prejudice to all stakeholders and provide the necessary opportunity to restore the collegiality that our school has come to signify over time." 
I must stress the great sensitivity and personal nature of the above remedial actions and urge you to honor the confidentiality of the feedback. I will personally follow up with the various players in this matter under the guidance of Mr. Jarvis. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I trust that this matter is now closed. End quote. There is nothing closed about this matter, say Leslie McNutt and Jackie Sauer. I'm not going to read all the correspondence at you, because I have a heart. But the mothers could not make their position any clearer. In the words of Jackie Sauer, quote, I am appalled, to say the least, that someone of Mr. McKenzie's caliber that is dealing with a written warning for his behavior towards a boy is retained in a position of authority in this school. It makes me very worried. End quote. Leslie McNutt goes further. She mentions the pesky detail that is says. She says that McKenzie repeatedly contravened the SACE code of ethics, quote, via various egregious breaches of confidentiality and trust, deceit, irresponsibility, and blatant favoritism, end quote. She adds, quote, surely I should not need to point this out to you, end quote. There are more emails demanding accountability until Alan Thompson decides to start ignoring them. And so, a week later, Leslie McNutt writes, Quote, Dear Alan, please will you let me know if I should be expecting a reply from you with regard to my last email. End quote. Alan Thompson writes back, quote, I am satisfied that this matter has been fully addressed and that every point raised in your meeting with Mr. Jarvis has been addressed in his report. I have accepted every recommendation made by Mr. Jarvis and have already commenced actioning same. I consider this conversation closed. End quote. Okay, fine. Leslie McNutt decides, this sounds like a job for the board. And so she writes Chairman Jacko a very long email. And then it is 2018 on the campus against a hill. It's the second half of the water polo season. And while David McKenzie remains the subject of dark conversation, he also remains firmly in charge of his water polo wards. It would take until March 2018 before Leslie McNutt gets a meeting with Chairman Jacko Maria. But in the meantime, the headmaster's desk is laden with complaints of inappropriate behavior by David McKenzie. The housemaster of Armstrong has complained repeatedly. Remember Graham Lucas Bull? I go again to Alan Thompson and I voice my feelings of the appropriateness of these meetings. I start questioning the behavior and the appropriateness of behavior. And I make it very clear that I don't think it's appropriate. At the same time, another parent had been warning Alan Thompson. His name is Adrian Leach. My name is Adrian Leach. I'm 53 years old. I'm a businessman in George. He's the father of Richard Leach, who's the 18-year-old matric boy who told us earlier how David McKenzie would hold onto his swimsuit in practice and then pour him all over in the process. You would always grab your costume constant, like every single practice, every time he marks you, he's grabbing your costume. I mean, there's times where he doesn't need to do it. Adrian Leach had grown deeply concerned about David McKenzie's intentions with his then 14-year-old son. This was two years before Adrian's legal battle with the school will begin. Richard's first water polo coach was David McKenzie, but he was also the deputy housemaster of Espen, which in the beginning... Oh, we thought it was great, but with us going to college and spending time there and the boys coming to the house, 
they started talking, started hearing things. I thought David drinking with the boys and you know, boys going to David's room. And they had all sorts of codes. Peaky Blinders was one and what Harry Potter was another, Fast and Furious. Like if anybody would ask what were they doing in David's, they were watching Fast and Furious. So if somebody came, a prefect or housemaster, I know, so we're watching Fast and Furious. And I got very worried. In, the, in this whole process, I'd go and speak to Mr. Thompson. And I said to him, something's not right with David McKenzie. I'm here, he's drinking with the boys, and he's got Richard under his wing. So what do I do? I tell him everything I know. I gave him names. I told him who the boys were. And I said to him very clearly, if my son gets caught drinking, don't come to me. Do not come and tell me because David McKenzie is drinking with the boys. He listened to me and he said, have you got proof? And I said, I don't have any proof, but I'm telling you now, I've heard it firsthand from the boys. It's not secondhand. The boys have said to me they were drinking. I gave him the names. I told him who the boys were. Two weeks later or three weeks later, Richard got caught drinking. One night in Espen House, Richard and some friends get access to some drinks. Like any grade nine confronted with a bottle of vodka all his own, Richard drinks an imprudent amount. He passes out, but when he comes to, a man is sitting on his bed. It is David McKenzie. How does it even come to this? How does a self-regarding school not notice grooming? None of the complaints allege sex abuse, but all the complaints are of grooming behavior. At the start of this investigation, for the record, we asked Headmaster Thompson whether he understands what grooming is. He seems to bristle at the question in his written response. Quote, the concept of sexual grooming and the definition of sexual grooming is well known and it is further well known that there are stages of grooming that progress incrementally." End quote. We also asked about the procedure he would follow if he were made aware of sexual grooming. Quote, Firstly, the accused employee would be suspended pending a disciplinary hearing, and the hearing would be chaired by an independent chair with legal knowledge. If the evidence even suggested on the face of it a case against the accused employee, the necessary reporting would follow to the authorities and college would work internally in a supportive and investigative way to support the victim, end quote. Now, as far as I can figure it out, there are only three possibilities. One, that Alan Thompson actually cannot recognize the signs of grooming. Two, that Alan Thompson did recognize the signs, but chose not to follow the procedure. Or three, that Alan Thompson was in denial. We welcome back expert witness Luke Lamprecht of Women and Men Against Child Abuse. I want to understand if there's any innocent reason for an adult to socialize with children. If we see a teacher with insufficient boundaries, could it be something other than grooming? Only if you're in denial, says Luke. What we as society do a lot and we need to be really careful of is what we call minimization. He only drank with him. He just took him to the mountain to help him because he was having a depressive or suicidal kind of episode. The minute we start engaging in that language, we start recognizing that we know it's wrong because we have to add a rider. 
and what they are doing is they are behaving unprofessionally. If you are a professional and you are sitting drinking with your students, you are already doing something that is wrong. You are facilitating your children doing something illegal. So this whole idea of people getting into positions of enormous power with children without any professional boundaries creates that problem. And then it is March 2018. Polo season is almost over. And so is the St. Andrew's career of David McKenzie. In three months, he would resign, but not because of any of the four complaints the Thompson administration is already dealing with. In the middle of March, Leslie McNutt finally meets with Chairman Jacko. We are in the Highlander in Grahamstown. The Highlander is an event space stroke drinking hole on the St. Andrews campus. And I continued to say the same thing over and over again, which was they needed to look for it. They needed to talk to the people. I'd given everybody very clearly a long list of teachers who I felt could be interviewed for information, but it was not my role. I had no business going around asking people for information about that. It was all I could do is say what our experience was. So I asked him to take that on. And again, they said that there wasn't enough for them to take on an investigation. And the matter was closed. In his follow-up letter to Leslie McNutt, Chairman Jacko writes, quote, The issues you have raised about David McKenzie are wide-ranging and at face value very worrying. The fact is that Alan Thompson did take action following your letter in November and requested an independent review by Michael Jarvis. The review involved interviews with a number of senior staff members, not boys, and was definitely not a whitewash, end quote. Chairman Jacko writes that no disciplinary action can be taken without, quote, evidence of serious wrongdoing. He adds that the school's senior management, quote, are acutely aware of and sensitive to the issues you have raised. We all have an obligation to uphold the reputation and ethos of the school, protect our pupils, but also in a case like this to ensure that our staff members are fairly treated according to their conditions of employment. End quote. And then Chairman Jacko bats back the ball. Quote, I encourage you to deal with Alan Thompson if you have any new issues you wish to raise, but please do not hesitate to contact me in need. End quote. But one good thing did come from Leslie's meeting with Jacko. The chairman agrees that Alan Thompson will share the independent HR report. Is it a whitewash? You decide. When Leslie McNutt finally gets her hands on the HR report, it is April 2018. The moment she reads it, she understands why the school went to such an effort to suppress it. I wish I could read all of it to you, but I'm already testing your patience with all the HR talk. So I'll be quick, I promise. Under the heading, highly confidential, not for distribution, Michael Jarvis writes straight away that, quote, the matters raised in both letters reference experiences during 2015 and 2016, end quote. In the absence of further evidence, he says, the time that passed since then, quote, makes it difficult to support a hard disciplinary exercise to be launched in late 2017 over matters dealt with adequately or not in November 2016, end quote. Thereby, he reduces the complaints to three. The first is an admin matter involving a schoolboy. The second is the intimidation of Wilder McNutt. And the third entails, quote, 
welcoming learners into his flat at Espen for meetings or interactions not related directly to his duties, with speculation arising what was happening there. Insufficient basis to proceed uniquely. Now, remember how Wilder McNutt recalled the intimidation. What's your problem with me? Do you have a problem with me? What's your mum's problem? Well, that's simply not what happened, Michael Jarvis writes in his top-secret report. He writes that, quote, The interaction, while unwise and deserving of censure, was clearly not designed to be intimidatory or in any manner to undermine the confidence of the learner, end quote. But if Wilder misunderstood the interaction, it is really David McKenzie who is the one who's misunderstood, says Michael Jarvis. Quote, he is an ambitious and driven young man with an effusive and naked personality and can be quick to react on occasion. End quote. Michael Jarvis appears unworried about the matters that have been raised by the two boys' parents, but briefly states that McKenzie, quote, has demonstrated over time that he can get away from himself by disclosing more than his wise or expecting the learners to see him as an equal. End quote. But have a heart. Quote, by his own admission, his greatest strength is his greatest vulnerability. End quote. Some incredible mental gymnastics from the pen of Michael Jarvis. Quote, there is an old adage that suggests there is no smoke without fire. There is also a recognition that if the fire is not visible to you, there is little effect in spraying water over it. In labor law terms, this might suggest that acting impulsively and on the basis of a rush of insinuations spanning an extended period will not only be legally questionable, but morally reprehensible. End quote. Finally, Michael Jarvis addresses the elephant in the room. Quote, While there is no shred of evidence whatsoever, despite certain insinuations during the various interviews, that there is any possibility of a sexual or otherwise inappropriate relationship, End quote. Jarvis recommends that McKenzie be given a written warning for intimidating, not intimidating, Wilder McNutt in his bedroom in Espen House. That's amazing. Thank you very much. And so, with his bacon saved, an emboldened David McKenzie has a new trick up his sleeve. He will start a cooking club. At the time, David McKenzie was staying in our flatlet at our home in Grahamstown. Long story, something was up with Mackenzie's flat in Espenhaus, so he asked if he could stay with the Kruger family for a bit. He started what he told Libby and I was a cooking club. He'd buy the ingredients, they would go to a location of sorts on campus, I don't know exactly where it was, and he would teach these boys how to cook the meal that he had arranged to cook that night. According to a 2018 article that is still on the St Andrews website, a group of 16 matric boys attended the first ever cooking club to be established at St. Andrews. It notes that the matrics had basil pesto chicken with brown rice, sun-dried tomato, and a fresh summer salad. But if that is what the school believed, a WhatsApp exchange between David McKenzie and a schoolboy who is nowhere near matric suggests that all was not as it seemed. I ask Charles Kruger, to read me the exchange. This is the first time I've seen this, so I hope I'm not going to be shocked, but David McKenzie sends a WhatsApp to a boy that says, wish I was at with you guys. I'll see you in two weeks though. Ask me to organize a stroke correction reunion. What do you think? The boy replies, exclamation mark, if you can do that. 
David McKenzie then goes on to say to the boy, I know, right? Would be fucking tricky, but I've organized way harder things than that. Remember the cooking club thing? The boy replies to David McKenzie, that got everyone fooled. I'm mind blown, to be quite honest with you. I, I just cannot believe that a teacher, coach, mentor can be communicating with one of his students on that level. It's despicable. Uh, you, you know, you <laughs> that got everyone fooled. The boy says back to his master, that got everyone fooled. How is this possible? How? Is it possible to feel betrayed by him? I feel absolutely betrayed. But if you can fool some of the people some of the time, you can't fool all the people all of the time. One month after cooking club starts, David McKenzie sneaks a boy from the sanatorium. And seven days later, out goes David McKenzie with immediate effect. On the appropriately sunny morning that the news breaks, Leslie McNutt is visiting Grahamstown from Botswana. She phones Wilder. She asks him to come meet her. And as she walks towards the clock tower, she sees Wilder walk past it towards her. They meet in the middle of Upperfield. I'll never forget it. That was a joyous day for me. I asked Wilder to meet me. He was walking from Espen and we met in the middle of the rugby field. And I looked at him. And for the first time in three years, I saw a glint in his eyes. He was, he was back. He was, I saw that shine that had been gone. And he stuck his hand out and he said, Mom, he's gone. And so it is a brand new day at St. Andrew's College. After three and a half years of questionable behavior, David McKenzie has moved on. Within a week of leaving Grahamstown, he has organized a new gig at Gray College in Bloemfontein. Soon enough, he's appointed permanently to Gray College and irregularly appointed, the Bloemfontein High Court would later rule. To McKenzie's credit, he did see it coming. People that are just making positions for people don't always work out. But let's hope they understand what they've got if they've got me. Never mind. Here he is encouraging some grey college players in a water polo match. But if David McKenzie is moving on, it is harder for the boys he has left behind. In WhatsApp messages spanning nine months from the time he left St. Andrews, he continues being firmly involved in the day-to-day -day lives of his former students. He demands being consulted on tiny matters. He consoles a boy who kissed someone else's girlfriend while simultaneously telling the wronged party, quote, you never trusted him anyway, end quote. Most of his exchanges seem affectionate, but not really when it comes to the case of Thomas Kruger. Charles has not seen the messages, but in the weeks since Mackenzie's departure from college, he's seen his boy go from bad to beyond. Then, one night, Thomas disappears, 
and Shaw knows that something is rotten. He takes Thomas back to P.E., then, a few days later, back he goes to Grahamstown for an exchange with Headmaster Thompson that Thompson denies ever happened. He arrives at Alan Thompson's office. Earlier, I asked Leslie McNutt what the office is like. Is it nice? Alan Thompson's office. It's not Alan Thompson's office. It's the headmaster's office of St. Andrew's College. So, yes, it's quite a nice office. Inside the office of the headmaster of St. Andrew's, Shaw reports Mackenzie to Thompson. And I say to him, Alan, I've come to live in Grahamstown for three months to overturn every stone looking for the scorpion that's upsetting my child. I have not worked my way through all of the Mackenzie tapes. Come on, have a heart. But the patterns could not be clearer. The ingenious ways to groom a child and to groom their parents too. In many instances, I can see Mackenzie talk to a boy all day long and then send the boy's mum the sweetest little note. For instance, it is July 2018 and Thomas is at home in Port Elizabeth. Mackenzie writes, quote, What are your plans tomorrow? You in PE? End quote. Tom says he can't see Mackenzie the next day. Quote, My grandparents arrive from the UK tomorrow morning. End quote. Mackenzie responds, quote, No, Thomas, I need to see you and talk to you. I'm coming to your house tomorrow, so just deal with it. End quote. Thomas responds, quote, Fuck. Okay, sir. Emoji with gritted teeth. Emoji laughing diagonally. End quote. An hour later, Mackenzie sends a message to Tom's mum. Quote, Hey, Libby! Three exclamation marks. How are you? How's my boy? End quote. She tells the teacher that Tom is, quote, just chilling here in PE, end quote. As Mackenzie knows perfectly well. He writes back, quote, Can I pop by tomorrow? I know your folks arrive. Two flexing arm emojis, end quote. Sure thing, says Tom's mum. Through the winter of 2018, Tom's last, his questionable relationship with David McKenzie continues. One morning, McKenzie writes, quote, Please don't forget the costume, Thomas! Four exclamation marks, end quote. For American listeners, a costume is a swimsuit. Tom sends a picture of two very small speedos, a black one and a red one. McKenzie responds, quote, Black, please, end quote. A few days later, after Mackenzie has shown up at his house with a Zara packet full of so-called chocolates, Thomas writes to his former teacher, quote, when must I open that packet, end quote. Mackenzie responds, quote, yes, you can look in the packet and take yours if you need it. Flexing arm emoji, end quote. But by now, Tom's response times have started to lag. After a series of P's for ping and a stop ignoring me, it still takes Thomas almost 14 hours to respond to his former teacher. Still, Mackenzie has some bidding left for the boy to do. One morning, he writes, quote, I miss it, boss! Four exclamation marks. Listen, can you give those chocolates out tomorrow? Can you please sneak into their rooms and put it under their pillows? Question mark, question mark, end quote. Tom writes, quote, That's a bit of a problem, sir. Gritted teeth emoji. I'm not at school. Can do it? End quote. Mackenzie says, quote, Why, where are you, chop? No, I don't want someone else to do it. When are you going back to school? End quote. 
Thomas writes, quote, not sure yet, but when I go back, I'll do it, sir, end quote. McKinsey responds, quote, what's wrong, Thomas? Don't say you're sick. I saw you on top of Pride Rock, end quote. The previous day, Tom had posted some Instagram pictures of him and his puppy alone at Pride Rock in the green and rocky mountains outside Grangestown. Thomas writes, quote, I've left St. Andrews, grinning emoji. Please don't tell the rents I told you, crying laughter emoji, end quote. Rents is teenage slang for parents. Mackenzie is shocked and shook. What? Then, I'm confused. A few seconds later, speak to me. Thomas writes, quote, I was just done with it today, and my dad said I could leave, end quote. By now, David McKenzie is living by himself in Bloemfontein. Grey College has put him up in a guest house called Sokelbossi. He sends a picture of his room to half a dozen children at St. Andrews. Before I read you Tom's response, please note that the word sick, S-I-C-K, is teenage slang for totally cool, immensely cool. Tom writes, quote, It's like a hotel. It's so fucking sick. Couch looks pretty comfy. Flexing arm emoji, end quote. McKenzie replies, quote, Exactly. When you're coming for a visit, my door is open for you anytime, end quote. But then we're back to chocolates. On an afternoon in late July, McKenzie writes, quote, Have you eaten your chocolate? End quote. Then immediately after, quote, Where is the proof? End quote. Tom responds in a voice note. Um, yeah, so I'm giving them all out tonight. And then when I start eating mine, I'll send you proof. McKenzie responds, quote, You better show me proof! Four exclamation marks. Thanks for doing that for me, Thomas. Means a lot. End quote. And then it is a school night in early spring. At four minutes past midnight, Tom receives a WhatsApp from a drunk David McKenzie. McKenzie writes, quote, when am I seeing you? End quote. Tom responds within a minute, quote, whenever you are back, sir, why are you up so late? End quote. McKenzie writes, quote, at a jaw, you? Well, I'm home now. I'm fucked. Bought steers for days. Ha ha ha, well I shouldn't be driving, that's for sure. End quote. And then a remark I can barely believe. Tom sends Mackenzie a picture of a girl he likes. At eight past midnight, the drunk Mackenzie writes, quote, Well, Thomas, I took care of you enough times. Flexing arm emoji, flexing arm emoji, flexing arm emoji. End quote. But as the new polo season starts in Bloemfontein, there's a marked cooling off in Mackenzie's relationship with Thomas Kruger. This is not the case with Mackenzie's other favourites. Thomas wants a bursary to Grey College, but Mackenzie says his hands are tied. But to one of Tom's polo mates, Mackenzie's overtures are entirely different. One night, he tries to convince a minor boy to come to Grey College on a scholarship. He writes, quote, I need you, end quote. Immediately, please. Straight after, what must I do? The boy responds, quote, Sir, I also need you, but not Gray, end quote. Mackenzie writes, quote, Please, I don't want to without you, end quote. The boy writes, quote, Sir, I can't, end quote. Mackenzie does not respond, 
So the boy writes, Sir? But Mackenzie is done talking. The next day, he sends the boy a message. Quote, Sorry, I was just bummed. Delete chat. End quote. But for Thomas, the messages grow shorter and the intervals longer and longer. The messages he does receive have become angrier. Remember this voice note from earlier? Yeah, uh, shit, Tom. Make up your mind. I want to know what you're doing with it. Oh, fuck. Sleep off. I want to know what you're doing with your life, please. So I can sleep at night. So maybe you feel much better knowing that you are alive and your brain isn't dying. But even as Tom's mental health deteriorates, he keeps on to confide in his former teacher. Sometimes Mackenzie responds. Sometimes he doesn't. Often, he passes on the news to others. That's how it is on 14 November 2018. Thomas has four days left to live. On Tom's fourth last day, we are in Port Elizabeth. From 8.27am to 8.35, Tom has his final known conversation with David McKenzie. It's been a month since Thomas last heard from Mackenzie. And now at 8.27 a.m., Tom receives two messages from his former teacher. The first one reads, quote, Thomas! Five exclamation marks, end quote. The next one reads, quote, How are you, my boy? Three question marks, end quote. Thomas responds instantly, quote, Sir, I'm going on journey. I just found out, end quote. Mackenzie writes, quote, what? Three exclamation marks. Stop it. Are you going back to college? Why didn't you tell me? No question mark, end quote. Thomas says, quote, I only found out yesterday. I'm trying not to tell anyone, though. It's supposed to be like a surprise, end quote. The teacher, who will be celebrating his bachelor's party the night of Tom's death, writes to the boy, quote, goodness, Thomas, you do love your surprises. Not happy at Gray, end quote. Tom writes, quote, I'm very, very happy at Gray. My rents hate it, though, end quote. For the record, his father denies this. Mackenzie says, quote, well, I cannot wait to catch up with you soon, end quote. I've always found the response from Thomas odd. It's been five months since Mackenzie left St. Andrews in disgrace, but Tom Kruger somehow misunderstands what Mackenzie just said. He writes, quote, Are you coming? Question mark, 11 exclamation marks. End quote. Mackenzie writes something entirely reasonable. Quote, coming where? End quote. Tom writes back, On journey! Five exclamation marks. End quote. And then David Mackenzie writes his last known message to Thomas. Quote, Not a chance, my boy. I have a new life now. In P.E after journey, end quote. After three years worth of messages, David McKenzie hits send on his last WhatsApp to Thomas. But he's itching to share the news. So he sends a message to one of his polo boys, quote, I heard about Thomas, end quote. The boy responds, quote, who, what, that he's back, end quote. McKenzie answers, Quote, yes, I'm very glad he is back and he is going on journey. Don't tell anyone I told you. End quote. 
A few hours later, he tells the same news to a different polo boy. Here's a voice note he sent. His parents didn't like Gray, so they've sent him back to St. Andrews. And yeah, they got him, they squeaked him onto journey just in time, which is quite hilarious. I mean, what a stuff up. Back in Port Elizabeth, it's a crazy busy day for Thomas. He's supposed to be going on a three-week hike from the source of the Great Fish River in the Karoo to its mouth on the Indian Ocean. The day before we need to leave to drop him off back at Espen House, Tom and I need to go and do some last-minute shopping for some of the things that were on his list that he had to pack in his backpack for journey. We go to outdoor warehouse in Willem Moffat in Klebecha. We're looking around for mattresses, inflatable mattresses. And next to the inflatable mattress is this tiny little pouch with a hammock made out of parachute material. So he says, Dad, look how cool this is. And he'd always, always loved a hammock since he was a baby. There had been one at the, uh, my parents' in law house in Kenton, and he always loved to lie in that hammock. And uh, it was quite an expensive item, and it was definitely not on the list. And I thought, you know, he's been through so much. He's been through so much that, uh, what the hell, we'll just have the hammock. Tom and I get home, and his girlfriend's there, and he says, Dad, very excitedly, why don't we have, why don't you give this hammock a try? On our pavement, there was the only big tree in the property. I am tying the knot on one side of the tree. Thomas is tying the knot on the other side of the tree. And then he and his girlfriend are getting into the hammock to try and to see how it works. But Tom's side of where he tied the knot kept on slipping. They kept on falling onto the brick paving. So eventually his girlfriend says, let your dad show you how to tie a knot which I duly did. Yeah, I certainly do regret that. And then it is Thursday morning. Tom and his parents get in the car and make for the end too as they start the familiar 90-minute drive from P.E. to Grahamstown, Shell Kruger drives his son somewhere for the final time. Somewhere along the Great Fish River, five groups of boys from St. Andrews and girls from DSG are navigating their journey to the ocean. No phones are allowed, and neither is tobacco or vaping liquid or rolling papers. Not that David McKenzie has not tried to help with the contraband. McKenzie had been a group leader on Journey before. He was even the subject of a disciplinary matter after an incident in 2016. But in 2018, safely ensconced in Bloemfontein, the polo coach is full of advice. For instance, the morning before Journey starts, one of the boys sends McKenzie a WhatsApp. Quote, Sir, so if I were to take like tobacco, how should I do it? End quote. McKenzie responds, quote, I would put it in my underwear. They don't check in the front of your pants. They only check once, and that is when you are all on lower field on the day you leave, end quote. But two days later, on day three of journey, Thomas gets caught with tobacco, some vaping liquid, and rolling papers. Then again, according to a source from the scene, Thomas wasn't so much caught with the contraband. He decided to hand it in. I have not been able to confirm this, but it would make sense to me. To me, there is no doubt that Thomas had his death finally planned. He knows the procedure. 
If you get caught with contraband, you're going back to college to spend the night in the sanatorium. But as Thomas gathers his belongings, his actions are not those of a boy who is planning to come back. I find two particular details particularly instructive. The first involves his hammock. The second involves his goodbyes. First up, there's the hammock. As Thomas collected his things, some mates of his were using his hammock. Please get off, Thomas tells them. I need to take the hammock too. Why not just leave the hammock that other people are using? The logical reason would be, you'll need the hammock in the sanatorium. Thomas packs up the hammock with its long and strong rope designed to hold the weight of a body. And then it is time to go. Thomas says goodbye. One of his friends recalls the moment. He tells me that as his friend was leaving, Thomas turned to him and said, I'll never see you again. He laughed, he tells me, but he's been regretting it ever since. Thomas is driven back to the sanatorium. He is not given access to a phone. His parents are not notified. Twelve hours after leaving journey, Tom is hanging out of a window. Tom Kruger was two years below Walder McNutt in Espenhaus, but they had plenty in common. He took his polo really seriously, and he was good. I mean, he was in grade 10, playing on the second team and killing it. So he joined my water polo team, and then we hung out a lot more because we were on the same water polo team. We had the same training, and then we spent a lot of time together. The first term of my matric year, we finished water polo season, and then he left. He went home and didn't, just didn't come back. And, uh, you know, somewhat cut off contact. And, you know, we kind of knew he was struggling just to be in the house and that kind of stuff. And, I mean, there was this night where he came and hung out of my room. He was just oddly angry at David. It does get to me because it... There was something about that where he was just oddly angry that I just didn't catch on. I didn't see. And, uh, I mean, yeah. And then after that, he left. I didn't see him too many times after that. Uh, yeah. Um, I found out he was going on a journey and coming back. But I didn't have time to see him because I was in the middle of exams. And uh, we got called in to the cathedral as a school. Um, and we're told by Alan Thompson. Um, and so that's how I found that. And then we all got called back to Espen for a bit. And uh, I think he, our housemaster said a few words and, and then I went back home Tom was a smart kid he was a 
great kid. He was personable. He was friendly. Everybody loved him. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. He was sad and depressed and wanted to leave and didn't know where he belonged. And it was concerning to me. Why, why does that happen? You know, how does that happen? And because I had understood and had walked through all this process with Wilder, I was literally imprinting that concern onto Tom. And I just, I just said to Wilder, I said, what if it had something to do with Dave? What if? And we didn't get, and we didn't get there. We didn't do enough. And Wilder just looked at me like in disbelief. He said, no, it couldn't have, Mom. It couldn't have because Tom hated David. That was how we left it, that we went to his funeral, we carried on, Wilder finished my trick. And then it was, you know, weeks later, really, when I got this call from Grant. Grant is a close friend of Charles Kruger. Asking if I'd talk to him about our experience with David McKenzie because he had found some concerning things on Tom's phone. These included three furious voice notes on the topic of chocolate distribution. He was concerned about the relationship with David and Tom. And that would I be willing to talk about it? And then in Grahamstown, it is now nine days after the death of Thomas Kruger. A parent from St. Andrew's College, no one we've mentioned in this podcast before, writes a worried letter to Chairman Jacko Maria. He is deeply concerned about whether St. Andrew's College is committed to its duty of care. Among four points he mentions, two are terribly familiar. They are Thomas Kruger and David McKenzie. In the parents' email to Chairman Jacko, he argues for some common-sense reforms. Here is his first of five suggestions. Quote, All staff to have compulsory annually recurring training delivered by an appropriately trained professional in dealing with children and vulnerable adults, specifically in identifying and dealing with incidents of grooming and radicalization. End quote. When Chairman Jacko sends his formal response, Thomas has been dead for three and a half weeks. On the topic of David McKenzie, the chairman writes, quote, The first and only complaint about Mr. McKenzie was received in February 2017. Although we were not presented with any factual evidence of any form of misconduct, there was sufficient suggestion to commission an independent investigation by an HR consultant based in Port Elizabeth. This resulted in a written warning being issued to Mr. McKenzie. The school acted promptly and decisively at the first time that evidence of misconduct came to light. Throughout the period in question, no parent, boy or staff member came forward with serious and substantiated allegations which were capable of being acted upon. There was no allegation of grooming. End bloody quote. And then a new year breaks at the campus against the hill. Mackenzie is gone, and so is Tom Kruger, but the steady hand on the tiller remains Headmaster Thompson. Welcome to college in 2019. We really are looking forward to a cracker of a year. It started well with some really outstanding matric results. Good numbers of grade 8 boys have arrived and already have kicked off well. So we all geared up for a fantastic year. 
We have an absolute cracker of a weekend of sport ahead of us. Uh, we host our own Settlers Regatta down in Port Alfred this weekend. We have water polo, cricket, basketball, all against some of the top teams we're going to face this year. So wonderful opportunity for our boys to really test themselves, to stretch their legs and to get going for a great year of sport. We have everything that we need to make 2019 an absolutely awesome year. We look forward to seeing you in Grahamstown when you have the opportunity and just enjoying some of the really special moments of college. God bless. If the absence of Mackenzie were anything to go by, 2019 really could be a real cracker of a year. When Mackenzie departed for Bloemfontein, so did Stroke Correction and Harry Potter and Peaky Blinders, if not the bacon emoji. In the most salacious sense, I must report a failure. I've heard many theories and inklings and rumors, but I've not established the meaning of the secret codes. I will keep on looking. I quite fancy myself a real detective. But as the story of the spring has unfolded, I came to appreciate fully that I was looking for the wrong thing. The point is not what a secret entails. It is that a secret exists. Here's Luke Lamprecht. We have to remember that the power behind abuse is the secret. The child, they struggle to tell anybody because they drank or they smoked marijuana or they've looked at porn. And that then becomes the power of abuse, which is the secret. As a storyteller, unsolved secrets dismay me. But as an activist, I feel a cracking sense of clarity. There is only one circumstance under which adults engage children in secrets. The adult wants to do something. They need the child to hide. As for the bacon emoji, let me tell you the strongest clue I have found. If the theory is right, the bacon emoji is somehow less and more disgusting than I thought. In a WhatsApp exchange in August 2018, we see Mackenzie pick a fight with a schoolboy. After sulking for 24 hours, Mackenzie is ready to make peace. He sends the boy a message that consists of three bacon emojis. Immediately, the boy sends back four bacon emojis. Mackenzie writes one word. Brothers. The boy doesn't respond immediately, so Mackenzie says, right? Half an hour later, the boy asks, about? Mackenzie writes, quote, we brothers, end quote. The boy writes, quote, of course, end quote. As we roll to the end, it is worth wondering whether all of this was necessary. Has it been necessary to make such a hoo-ha about private matters? The correct question, I believe, is whether sex abuse is that big a deal. I asked Luke Lamprecht, who has turned out to be quite the gravel-voiced sage. How does just touching somebody's dick become a big thing? So it's got a lot to do with the trauma response. When you are put under threat, no one wants adult men running around touching their penises when they're little boys. It's not what anybody wants. So what happens is you then get a trauma response. That trauma response comes with basic physiological responses. 
the three main reactions to a threat are fight, flight or freeze. Fight and flight we understand. Most people can't fight, most people can't run because you're in an environment you can't get out of and the people are bigger than you, you can't fight. Freeze is the most common. Very simply, your brain goes into alarm mode. That alarm releases certain chemicals. Those chemicals shut off the connection in your limbic system or your emotional brain to a thing called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is the library of your brain where we take our experiences and we file them and we store them away. So there's a physical breaking of that connection. However, the body remembers. So when you have another trauma that kind of reignites that system, that same system is now buzzing from the trauma and it's making connections because of the trauma of the past. There are memories of it, but they're scattered. They're not filed, they're not in the library. It's like you've taken the books and thrown them all in the air and now you find in the chapters and the pages and you're reconstructing it. The effects of this dissociative disconnect takes decades to process. In order for you to process abuse, you've got to move it from your amygdala, from your alarm center in your brain into your memory and then retrieve it. I'm not under threat now. But the trauma triggers because your body remembers the trauma. The trauma triggers then activate you as if you're under threat now. So you misinterpret situations, catastrophize experiences, overreact to things that are being said, and then that becomes overwhelming. So people self-medicate, start taking drugs, start drinking alcohol, and then in the most severe circumstances, they actually take themselves out because the world has become too painful to live in. The idea of being alive is more painful than the idea of no longer existing. And then it is four weeks ago, and episode three of this podcast is released. One of the young men listening was a water polo player at St. Andrews and coached by David McKenzie. On a Zoom call, the young man, I'm calling him Jonah, tells me what happens when he hears Richard Leach talk about David McKenzie coaching from the pool. When Richard reports that his coach groped him and groped him often while holding onto his speedo, a bank of memories suddenly come up for Jonah. He tells me, quote, It wasn't anything that I had ever thought about. I think for my brain I just put it back there the whole time. But when Richard started speaking about those things that happened in the pool, of him coming and grabbing your costume and moving across your dick and your bottom and everything, as soon as I was thinking about it, I've never seen such a vivid image in my head. The scenario that I was in just popped up, and I was right there. And all those feelings of being uncomfortable, thinking, is this right, what's going on here? came back, end quote. Jonah tells me how it all started. McKenzie insisted on giving him one-on-one coaching sessions. In the polo pool at St. Andrews, with the sanatorium lurking just above it, quote, he would grab my costume and I remember feeling really uncomfortable with his hand being there and also moving across those areas. But also in my mind, especially with the relationship I had with him, of this semi-father figure, I used to say to myself, it's fine, he's trying to get you better. This is for your benefit. He's showing you how it's going to be in the pool. And obviously, at that point, me not recognizing it's a 30-year-old man touching me down there. End quote. In polo, it's common to grab someone's speedo, says Jonah. Quote, but as a teenage boy, and I see this man in the pool, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to grab an old man's costume and the chance of me getting anywhere near there. But he didn't have a problem doing that. 
He will be behind me and grabbing my costume and try pulling me side to side to tire me out. Looking back, it seems excessive because I would never grab a costume that much in a game. I don't think anyone does. But it was this whole thing. You think he is just trying to help you. He's teaching you these tricks and he tells you that if someone grabs your costume, twist. End quote. The more McKenzie tires out the player, the easier the assault becomes. Quote, especially when he's pulling like going around, pulling you side to side, his hand is swiping across your penis, or if you're trying to swim out of it, it might be there and not be a swipe across. But his hand would stay there for a while. End quote. Jonah says he decided to come forward because McKenzie must be stopped. And it's not fair that Richard Leach is the only one to say so. Jonah is clearly a smart guy. But even though he understands that he did nothing wrong, he still feels ashamed about it. Quote, obviously you beat yourself up about it. How could you have fallen for that? But obviously it's not actually your fault. End quote. When this week started, I saw Shell Kruger again. I'm happy to say that he seems a lot healthier than I've ever seen him. He's lost a lot of weight. He used to be a little bit rotund. But losing 20 kilograms has had a startling effect. I could never see the resemblance before, but Charles suddenly looks like an older version of Thomas. In Charles' face, I can now see Tom's cheekbones and eye sockets and smile. This is what Tom would have looked like if he ever made it to 51. As I ask Charles whether this podcast has helped him to heal, it feels like I'm talking to Thomas, a boy frozen at 16, whom I only know from pictures and voice notes. Thomas was the last person I expected to interview. But now it feels like he's sitting in our studio in Johannesburg and answering questions from a man he'd never meet. Dion, obviously I always wondered why Tom did what he did. Going through this process, we certainly now have no doubt in our minds as to the fact that he was put in compromising situations through an inappropriate relationship. Have I achieved what I set out to do? Well, I think we've exposed a system that exists that shouldn't exist. People sweep it under the carpet because they think it will go away. It doesn't go away. I think the education in terms of the general public, educating people as to how sexual grooming takes place, how the perpetrator operates, the education behind all of that is, for me, become paramount in the quest to find justice for Thomas. I think that what we've exposed through the podcast has certainly saved hundreds, if not thousands, of other boys' lives. And really what I set out to do was to make sure that no other parent has to feel the pain that we have had to feel through the last three years. They say time's a healer, but I can tell you now time is just helps you hide your pain a whole lot better than what you were before that. I think when you lose a child, you're never not broken. However, you do learn to deal with it a little bit better and hide it a little bit better. But that all being said, I do feel strong, Dion. And I think that strength comes from Thomas. I think he's given me that strength to fight the fight. To all those parents who can't find it within themselves 
to talk to their children, please find it in yourselves to come forward and talk. It's not been David McKenzie squirming through his name being brought into disrepute in the media. What's made my heart the happiest is hearing about many, many in their scores and dozens of 50-year-old men coming forward and saying, hold on a sec, this happened to me. I've carried this burden my entire life and it's now time for me to share my story and to heal. Guys, don't be scared of it because it's the only way you are going to deal with it and cope with it going forward is by speaking. Through this entire process, there was something of a catharsis, if I can call it that, where I kind of felt that Tom was hell of a proud of me and that his little life started to mean something in some tiny form. By pursuing this, it would leave some sort of legacy to Tom and perhaps that's why Thomas Kruger had to die, to expose the can of worms that we've opened, uh, which I call a good can of worms because I think it's long overdue that a system is exposed and that potential predators or child groomers are exposed and are held accountable for their actions. And that's why I say it's perhaps why Thomas Kruger had to die. I have had it tattooed on my arm. I want it to be there forever. I still did joke with the boys when they were youngsters saying, if you ever got a tattoo that I'd have to disinherit you. There's nothing to disinherit. <laughs> but uh, dad was the first one to go and get a tattoo. It was easy and, uh, and I'm just very, very glad that I've got it on the wrist for the rest of my days. As we prepare to take our leave from David McKenzie, it is February 2019 in Bloemfontein. In just over a year, McKenzie and his pregnant wife will move back to Port Elizabeth. And ten months after that, at the beginning of this year, McKenzie will move up to Joburg without his young family. He would coach water polo at Redham in Bedford View until they fired him halfway through the podcast. He is believed to be back in P.E. But none of this was known in February 2019. Mackenzie is feeling safe enough in Bloemfontein to get up to his old tricks. At 20 past six one evening, he sends a message to a former pupil. Quote, can I ask you something? End quote. Sure, says the former pupil. Mackenzie writes, quote, So I haven't yet, but I'm about to start a new Harry Potter thing here. Tell me not to, end quote. The boy writes back, quote, Not a Harry Potter, rather a peaky blinders, horny devil emoji, end quote. Mackenzie responds, quote, You know what I mean, end quote. The boy says, quote, Have you got a sick group of guys, end quote. Mackenzie writes, quote, Yes, and they're pretty cool, hey? At least I'm not on campus now, end quote. The boy says, quote, so you think you can make it work, end quote. His former coach and teacher responds, quote, Yes, ha ha ha, but I thought that before too, end quote. Finally, the boy asks, quote, You found another me yet, end quote. Mackenzie responds, quote, Impossible, end quote. 
The problem with a live investigation is that it comes to an artificial end. I think it's fair to say that this is the water polo spring. We've been able to identify David McKenzie and Mark Evans, who's currently suspended by DSG and is formerly from Redham Constantia in Cape Town. And in Australia, Dean Carlson, formerly of Grey High and Pearson in PE and Westville Boys in Durban, is probably expecting a lengthy time in a small room provided by the Australian government. Last week, Dean Carlson appeared in court again on the Sunshine Coast. After being arrested on one charge of grooming a child, he now faces 25 charges linked to child pornography and other crimes, according to a report in the Sunshine Coast Daily. It's been a torrid spring for other coaches too. At Woodridge near Port Elizabeth, the school has been forced to explain itself repeatedly to parents after two coaches, a former polo coach and the school's director of sport, resigned last month with immediate effect. They are Ryan Skippers and Ricky Gelber. Elsewhere, drama coach Wesley Denke remains under suspension at Herschel in Cape Town. As for former polo coach Claire Milan, she will be leaving Cedar House at the end of the year. And last Wednesday, up here in Johannesburg, softball coach Eric Nichols handed himself in to the police. Two women accused him of sexually abusing them when they were 16 in 2016. Eric Nichols was released pending further investigation, the police spokesperson told News24. One day later, Thursday, Eric Nichols has come to a decision. He drives to his office in Randpark Ridge, where he kills himself. Over at St Andrews College, they've been making quite the ado about the independent three-person review into the school's conduct in the McKenzie affair. Everything will be most transparent, both Jacko and Thompson said at speech day early in October. This week, the school released the terms of reference for the inquiry. It says that retired Judge Chetty will provide his findings to the board in January 2022. Will the outcome be transparent? You decide. Quote, Council will then determine which portions of the review board's findings and recommendations will be made public and which findings and recommendations will be implemented. End quote. As for the school's independent HR consultant, Michael Jarvis, he told News24 this week that he can't comment on his McKinsey report due to confidentiality. Quote, I hope you understand that in the circumstances I elect to refrain from specific responses to your questions, save to reject in the strongest terms any suggestion of a whitewash and to take a dim view of the innuendo otherwise. End quote. I was not planning on giving out a School of the Season award. I mean, School of the Season is not really a thing. Then, Wednesday afternoon, we received a response to some questions that News24 sent to Grahamstown. For decisive, transparent action that keeps children safe. The School of the Season award goes to... Kingswood College, a school in Grahamstown we have not mentioned before. Last week, a teenage boy reported that a member of staff had touched him inappropriately. And so the school springs into action. Now, a quick qualifier, I haven't investigated Kingswood College because its name has not come up. I am in no position to have an opinion on anything that happened there before this month. But here's what happened that makes Kingswood College the winner of the prestigious School of the Season Award. Two weeks ago, 
a learner tells the school he was inappropriately touched by an assistant teacher, Mukhatle Lebuchang Tulave, whom we hereby name in the public interest. Lebo Tulave, who also lived in the boys' hostel as an assistant, is immediately placed on precautionary suspension. Then the school investigates, and because they are right there, and the children are right there, they quickly find two more boys with similar stories to tell. So far, so great. But here's the seismic bit. Last Thursday, Lebo Tulave tenders his resignation with immediate effect. Oh, no, you don't, says Kingswood. In response to questions from News 24, Headmistress Tracy van Mollendorf says, quote, The educator's resignation was rejected as he failed to give the school the requisite notice to terminate his contract as set out in his contract of employment. The educator was subsequently notified to appear at a disciplinary hearing. End quote. It was held Tuesday this week, and when Lebo Tulavi does not show up, the hearing proceeds without him anyway. He is found guilty on all charges. He's also been reported to the police and to SACE. Headmistress van Mollendorf writes, quote, The school has invested considerable energy into creating an environment where pupils who feel that they have been ill-treated in any way can express their concerns without fear of reprisal. The fact that these incidents have been reported indicates that we have made steady progress in creating a space where pupils can feel safe. End quote. How powerful is this response? To me, Kingswood College has only enhanced its reputation as a place that cares about children. A place that will do its best to keep them safe. Because a great reputation is built on demonstrated care. I don't know about you, but I'm heartily sick of antagonists who say one thing and then seem to do the opposite. There's an advertising adage that goes, don't tell me you're funny, tell me a joke. It's a narrative principle that describes the limits of words. Don't tell me you're transparent, be transparent. Don't tell me you're trustworthy, show me that I can trust you. Don't tell me you care. Care. Predators go where children are, and children go to school. Schools should be expecting this. Career offenders are a reality of life, like COVID and lice. So may I modestly suggest a policy that would actually demonstrate care? I'd call it something like policy on career offenders. How to spot them and what to do next. Just look at the response from Kingswood College. It seems like a great place to start. Thomas Kruger did not have to die. It is my belief that he died of apathy, of ignorance and of narcissism, of blind eyes turned and of secrecy and of silence. Nothing in this story should have happened. But to the school principals and the governing bodies and the great and the good in charge of children, please, for heaven's sake, stop telling us that you care. Just care.
My Only Story is written and edited by me, Dion Wiggett. The executive producer is Alison Pope. The associate producer is Noctula Magnati. And the sound engineer is Sean Jeffries. The original score is by Charles Johan Lingenfelder, and our artwork is by Carla Kriusen. Our social media for the entire season was by Andrea Penfold. Additional reporting by News 24's Sisolnan Kakamba. News 24's production manager is Charlene Root, and their editor-in-chief, Adrian Basson, is our editorial advisor. Our lawyers are Willem de Klerk and Charles Duplessis. Special thanks to Sheldon Marias, Mboda Belife, Marvin Charles, Lisa Lee Solomons, Kelly Anderson, Alec Law, Kate Henry, Jeff Weeks, Temeng Kosin Komalo, Samantha Cowan, and Jenny Grisel. The following is hugely important. If anything came up for you while listening to this story, please, please talk to somebody. At myonlystory.org, there are loads of links to people to talk to, depending on where you are in the world. If you're in South Africa, you can always, always phone SADAG on 0800-456-789. It's sequential and easy to remember. 0800-456-789. This project was supported by Truth First and is made possible by contributions from people like you. Sign up at myonlystory.org if you want to be the first to hear what we are doing next. If we can raise the funds, we'll see you next time on My Only Story. This has been a co-production of the My Only Story non-profit company and News24.